Hello, uh, the uh, podcasting on the brink from a little bit snowy Prince George, the capital of northern BC, and it's another podcast, uh, the forest, the, uh, forest industry in BC and transition. And uh, my guest today is uh, Bob Rob Schutz. Uh, he's the industrial forest. Uh, services uh, CEO, has been a guest before, knowledgeable individual, uh, an RPF, registered professional forest, very knowledgeable about what is happening in the forest industry, not only in uh, BC, but virtually around Canada and the world for uh, all of that, because uh, the industry is in transition, not only here, but in a lot of other places. Rob, welcome to the show. Thank you, John. Nice to be here again. Uh, normally, you'd think that, you know, after an episode or two with you that we'd be running out of things to talk about, but it just seems like there's always change in the industry and uh, and we're, we're not really running out of topics. No, we so, won't. Uh, so, so actually, the last time we talked, uh, you know, was together with uh, Jim Chavan and, uh, and uh, you know, we covered a number of things and a number of areas were in transition. And obviously what we have, uh, even in that period, still now to a certain extent, the, the, the lumber industry is still struggling from a pricing perspective. The lumber market is still, although it rose up a little bit, uh, lumber prices, but it's kind of settled down again. And, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the indicators are positive for the second quarter, third quarter, likely, and in inflation and potential recession likely will not happen or it will become a soft landing. So by and large, everybody is fairly optimistic as where the industry will go and as far as lumber prices is concerned. Yeah, well right now, you know, the lumber prices are still quite a bit below break even for Correct. most of the companies. And, you know, I think probably, you know, the benchmark number that uh, I know Russ Taylor has kind of put out there and, and others is probably around five, uh, 500 uh, US per thousand board feet. And right now, what are we around 400? Something like a little that. over 400. So, 500 to 550 is a break even depending on what yeah. kind of a mill there. And, uh, but they're still underwater yeah. uh, uh, somewhat and that is a major concern. So that, that's, you know, that <clears throat> impacts, you know, the, the big one is, uh, um, you know, sawmill curtailments, and, you know, people are getting laid off, but it also impacts uh, residual chip production. And, and that's why a bunch of the pulp mills in the interior have been curtailing operations. And, and even recently, uh, Canfor announced the closure, uh, imminent closure of the Canfor pulp, uh, um, pulp line, not their paper line. They're, no, they're going to keep that off. And that is Prince George pulp, that, right? That's Prince George pulp, yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, just the pulp side, but not the paper, paper side. Machine, yeah, yeah. And that's indefinite? Uh, yeah, they'll close that down. And, you know, in the end, you know, there was a lot of speculation, you know, about or comments that this is Canforce fault or something like that. But we look back, uh, you know, 2007, 2008, when the housing market crashed and, you know, a lot of those companies started looking at, well, what do we need to fill the gap because they didn't have the residual chip supply from the sawmills operating. And so they started looking at, you uh, you know, whole tree chipping and that. And, and Ground we had wood. A, yeah, yeah. And, but, and we had a huge supply for about 15 years because that, of that the was the pine, pine deal. Yeah, pine yeah. deal, yeah. So they, you know, for 15 years, they salvaged a lot of that stuff. Um, however, you know, dead pine only sta lays, uh, remains standing for so many years, then it falls over and the stuff closer to the communities has been harvested or, or burnt. Right. And so there's nothing, you know, in the end, the, the, the trees are dead or they're gone and right. there's nothing left for three pulp mills in, in our community. Right. And so it's not really Canfor's fault. It's Mother Nature no. adjusting uh, and, fiber and, supply. And it was virtually predictable. And yeah. I think uh, you and Jim Savan did a report. And Murray Hall as well, yeah. And Murray yeah. Hall. And when, that was in 2000 and early 2000. Yeah, around 2010 or 11, they yeah. initially announced uh, about you know 17 sawmill closures, which uh, you know by 2019. After that, we uh, we had another announcement of about another seven or eight, uh, which happened fairly short shortly. Now the politicians said, "No, don't say yeah, that yeah, because well. that is not going to happen." So now it's it, you know you lose that many sawmills and uh, and. 
there's, you know, that's the residual chip supply is gone. And so the pulp mills can only survive so long with pulp logs. And, and then when that supply is gone, you're going to have to uh, see uh, pulp mills close. But we could say is five average sawmills required yeah. to feed one pulp mill, right? Yeah. And then since we talked the last time we talked, the numbers were around 35 have shut down. Yeah. Uh, with possibly another three, four, five to go. Since that time, probably another three or so. Uh, I see the mill out uh, west in Terrace has shut down. Well, curtailed. I think they're just they're yeah. temporary. And uh, but, Houston's up in the air, but I, you know. Yeah, but but the one in Terrace was the name of the. Chat the, one you're thinking. Huh? No, no, yeah. Terrace, the mill that is uh, ROC uh, uh, Holdings. Yeah. yeah, and and that's a tough operation yeah. too in yeah. that area in particular. And obviously, uh, Canfor for Houston has shut down since temporary, yeah. subject to uh, the, the the board of directors approving a new building a yeah. new mill, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's that's what I understand. And then obviously uh, the chat went has gone down yeah. permanently. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that one you could almost foresee, you know, the fiber supply for the conifer was really tight in that area. And, you know, when you make, uh, uh, you know, policy changes with respect to uh, everything from, you know, a reduced harvest level in the tree farm, you got the blueberries uh, decision, and that'll reduce the, reduce the annual level cut, cut right? a little bit more. Uh, you got the caribou habitat initiative in that area. So all of those. Uh, compounded on top of a situation where the fiber was already, you know, in balance or already tight. Right. Yeah, somebody had to either all three, you know, go or or uh, all three would have had to operate at a significantly reduced operating level, which is not really profitable for those right. companies. Right. So you named a you named a couple of things there just for the benefit of our guest watching. Uh, blueberry, well known by us uh, in the industry, is basically relating to First Nations in one area, and uh, and and uh, also in region eight they call it is in oh, treaty north treaty eight in northeastern bc and that affects the allocation of the annual allowable cut in that region significantly right well they the, the number wasn't as significant as as maybe it could have been i think okay. that the uh, harvest level in that fort st john area is about right um, and I'm going off the top of my head here, probably about two million, and they were thinking it would redrop by about three hundred and fifty thousand. But it's a kind of combination of conifer and deciduous, and, and uh, their supply of deciduous in that area is still really good. So, um, so what we're still trying to do with all those elements and all the industry and all the things that are going on all at the same time, we got everything is driven by the annual allowable cut and the availability of that cut, add to that to a certain extent economics in terms of what is viable and not, but taking that off the table a little bit, as it adjusts, that means if primates go down, ratio five, four or five sawmills will affect a pulp mill that simply cannot sustain itself on round wood, that's just economically not viable in a lot of cases. And then the other thing that is affected by it, and, and a lot of changes have taken place, is the pellet manufacturers. And, and again, for the benefit of our guests, we're talking about fuel pellets, not other pellets, but yeah. fuel pellets. Uh, there was a major readjustment with uh, the evolution of pellets. I just want to talk about that a little bit because relatively recent really if you look back in the late 90s early 2000s a lot of the pellet business started in this region with the swan brothers in the quanell region yeah. and then uh, they built the plant here in prince george yeah. and then from there and then it expanded foreign capital came in tall oil comes to mind from sweden uh, that secured timber rights, mainly in the uh, uh, Lodge Pine, yeah. dead Lodge Pine. And then others started to inv invest. And then 
Pinnacle emerged as an organization that expanded, uh, you know, with different interests involved, combination of in investments. And then only recently was Pinnacle and other companies acquired by... Drax. Drax Power out of and the And how UK. do you spell Drax? D-R-A-X. And Drax is a major operation yeah. in Britain. And, uh, and, and so if you see that name, that they now control most of the pellet manufacturing, not only in British Columbia, but also in other areas. Yeah, they have a few mills in Alberta and then in the U.S. Southeast as well, Alabama. And they more and more trying to control more of the pellet. Yeah, well, it, uh, you know, in the, I don't know how all the carbon... Uh, incentives work in the UK right. but uh, you know basically the, what these uh, uh, power generating uh, facilities yeah. in the UK they you know traditionally they uh, they burnt coal to produce steam that would rent, yeah. run their generators and they're just offsetting they're replacing the the coal with uh, with the pellets yeah or, or parsley yeah. yeah and it's mainly related to EU regulations and and, and yeah. uh, you know and, and all of that involved but the, the what will happen is that is more and more demand for pellets around the world and expansion in other areas yeah. especially uh, with the uh, war in Ukraine because a lot of that uh, uh, those pellets were also coming from Russia and uh, Belarus and so with the uh, sanctions on those countries all being uh, all, affected all, by all of that's been stopped so, so what it tells us is that you know, that although we are, respectfully, you know, watching our own little world here, but everything is affected by the rest of the world, yeah. more so now than ever before. Because even in Europe, uh, you know, the uh, uh, timber market in particular in, in the Europe mainland, uh, Germany and other places, prices have... Yeah, uh, yeah it's tight for, for a lot of those countries. Uh, yeah. You know, talking with... Various uh, pulp producers in in uh, in throughout Europe. Uh, fiber supply isn't just tight in British Columbia. It's uh, it's a kind of a global thing. It's and a global. There, there's you know there's some areas like and you know the the U.S. Uh, Pacific or the sorry the U.S. Southeast. Southeast you know and that's why they've been investing there. You you I watched one of your other podcasts in in Sweden. There's still a, a bit of a surplus. You know, so there's a few areas uh, that uh, you know there's availability of fiber, but in most areas where the industry had traditionally built, uh, it's pretty tight. Yeah, because if you look at the U.S. Southeast, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, a lot of the the timber there is southern yellow pine. You know, and I always say because we're competitors in a way. Uh, you know, you have to drill it before you nail it. You know, it, 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 it's much smaller, but a lot of that is second, third, uh, first, second, third, fourth growth, yeah. and it's basically grown on the old cotton fields. Yeah, and, and their rotation is like 18 years. So I know when I was down there, you talked to guys who were harvesting uh, trees that they had planted. You know, whereas, you know, when we talk about Drax and the BBC came through with, a, a, you know, an interview and an article several months ago, you know, and they, they were they were very you know upset that uh, that we were harvesting or Drax was harvesting uh, primary forest. Well, that's all we do really in British Columbia or or most of Canada is harvest primary forest. You know, yeah. And uh, and so the big push now with government though is so here we're harvesting primary forest in majority of the interior. Maybe in the coast there's a little bit of probably forty percent of the harvest is in second growth. Second growth, yeah. But uh, uh, not here. No, not here. And yet. Uh, no, but uh, not yet. Yeah. But uh, and and so if we're harvesting primary forest, but we want to salvage uh, or protect old growth. You know, there's a lot of pressure on the forest industry uh, because our, you know, uh, they're not mutually exclusive. Sometimes I'm not a registered professional forester, but I spend my whole life in the forest industry in Europe here, and, and obviously I'm extremely in, interested in the, the the thing that more and more, you know, as we go through all the challenges that we have here in British Columbia now in terms of, uh, you know, the uh, uh, incenting 
capital to build and invest in primary operations, that has to be a reasonable expectation of access and continuity of that fiber. And, and that is the driver behind, uh, you know, do people invest, do they not invest, or whatever they do. The, the way I kind of look at this more than other people do probably is I look at this as, a, you know, the, 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 we have this amazing province of British Columbia, you know, both coasts different than the interior, but talking about forest industry and the interior in particular, uh, you know, the has this ability to grow forest so amazingly and we'll talk a little bit more about because you're very very involved in that in your companies and reseeding and finding the right species and all the other things i i kind of look at this more and more that it it it's be it, it's be growing a a forest as a resort that we keep growing and treating it in that manner. How do you, as, as uh, you know, people do growing whatever they grow in other areas and treat the land well so it produces the fiber sort of or like whatever. a farm or agricultural it's a crop. Yeah, yeah. It's a crop. In my mind, yeah. that's what it should be and that's what we can use it to be. And that means... I don't think that's what, it seems like that's what the public doesn't want. You know, and so that maybe it's the public in Vancouver that would like to see, you know, all this old growth and natural forest un untouched. But it's a uh, myth. It's, uh, and it's at the expense of uh, the existing communities and uh, both existing and the First Nations communities and the industry. So, you know, to your point, you know, you don't have access to fiber or you, you, those that have access to fiber, there's a lot of uncertainty. And so will investment happen? Well, not until that surety of access to fiber is, is uh, you know, reintroduced because it's not there now. So isn't it in a way though, Rob, that, uh, you know, that uh, over all the time, relatively speaking, the industry is relatively new here in British Columbia because we can go back uh, to the 50s. I was born in 1940. <clears throat> You know, so that if I would have been here when I was, uh, you know, the six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old, we would have had 600 sawmills yeah. around the Prince George area that uh, were sawing lumber and they brought the, the sawmill to the bush and got a permit from yeah. government to cut in that area, left most of the uh, side wood and, and the sawdust and the shavings behind. Uh, you know, put it on the truck and then hauled it to yeah. planer road, and where they then planed it and put it in Carlos. And, and, so, and then meanwhile, all the waste, other than the lumber, you know, when you bring a log into one of those sawmills, right now, even the, the high efficiency ones, only about 42% of that log gets produced, converted into lumber. Correct. You know, the other, so what, what happens with the rest? Well, the Correct. outside is probably roughly 35% is, is chipped into uh, and feeds the pulp mills. You know, 7% is sawdust from cutting up the lumber and another 7% right. uh, is, is uh, um, shavings for the, the pellet manufacturers. And then be going even further than that, we say the bark yeah. is another source that can be utilized uh, 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 you know, I talked to uh, Brian Fair about that, yeah. that was looking at something that they are working on, in particular the bark. So the, the point is that, uh, you know, the resource belongs to us, the people here in British Columbia, that's different from other areas. So there's more public involvement in, in terms of uh, how do we get more social and economic return from the fiber. And, uh, and then finding that balance uh, in which we can attract capital uh, that built mills and then at the same time utilize the fiber as well as we can. And so when we saw the 600 mills, that didn't work any longer because we wanted to, through government policy, in, uh, attract pulp mills. Yeah. And that happened in the late 50s, uh, early 60s. 60s. When I came in in 65, they were building... Uh, uh, you know, Northwood Pulp and the Prince George, uh, Prince George Pulp, yeah. Intercontinental, three major pulp manufacturers, but they got concessions 
uh, from government to attract them TFL yeah, tree yeah, farm licenses? Yeah. yeah, I don't think, yeah, they all got, pulp, not tree farm licenses, the pulp mills got pulpwood agreements, okay. you know, which really backstopped the financial investment. You know, and I don't think very many of those, probably none of those pulp mills ever actually activated those uh, uh, pulpwood agreements. They were just kind of superimposed on the land base. Right. And if there was a, a curtailment of the sawmills, then they had a backstop so that they could go out and, and do some logging. But right. the mills here until about 2007, they had enough residual chips from the, you know, the sawmills, even though we transitioned from 700 sawmills down to what we have in the region now, maybe, uh, you know, 20. Uh, Somewhere there, around there. There, there was enough, you know, residual chips from the production of lumber to support those three pulp mills. Yeah. Uh, in, in fact, in the early 80s, I think Northwood Pulp virtually doubled in yeah. capacity. I always kind of look at it and say, we got four pulp mills because Intercontinental and Pinchos Pulp built in the mid 60s, then Northwood Pulp built around the same time, and then they doubled in size in the early 90s, yeah. 80s. 80s, yeah. Yeah, and then uh, you yeah, know, in the '90s it was a transition away from because initially it was all these uh, NBSK pulp, which is pulp that was created using chemicals, and then in the '98, late '80s, early '90s, there were a few of these uh, BCTMP pulp mills uh, that were built. One in Cornell, the one in uh, uh, Taylor, uh, you know, and and where they th those mills grind the wood up, so they only use uh, uh, you know half as much or less than half as much. Uh, fiber uh, to create the pulp. So they're much more efficient than those mills. Eh? They're, they're more they? efficient uh, in fiber utilization than the chemical mills, but right. the, the strength in the fiber isn't as strong. It's, right. it's not as great. So. so the chemical mills really, they boil it and, and, and introduce chemicals. Is that where the smell comes from? Uh, that's you're asking the wrong guy for that. But, okay, but, yeah, but it would be. Uh, yeah, uh, the, you know. The, I know it's much better now, yeah, but yeah. Uh, you know the yeah. in the beginning it, it used to be the difference between the one and the other. You know, so okay. Yeah. So yeah, it uh, uh, it's it, a lot of change over and never stops changing. You know, but for a bunch of those years, like you said, you you, you know the investment was uh, was. Uh, in the industry was generated as a result of access to fiber and surety of that fiber. Now as we're transitioning, or government has, has taken the steps to transition to their new vision of uh, the forest industry, which incorporates more old growth protection, uh, you know, more First Nations involvement um, and, and value added. Well, that, that, that process of getting there is going to create a lot of uncertainty for the existing industry because it it's taking from Peter to pay Paul. But it's all happening at the same exactly. time. Yeah. Is that you know is that because of uh, if I look at it uh, you know the so there we have difficult market conditions. We got the um, lodgepole pine pandemic uh, beetle. Then we got spruce beetle yeah. involvement. So reducing the annual allowable cut, which used to be at about 60 million yeah. cubic meters and as high as 80 million cubic meters to deal with the... Yeah, my, my thought is, is there ever a good time? You yeah, know, it makes you wonder, like, right? Yeah, people don't like change. They like what they're comfortable with. Uh, you know, we're in the process of a lot of change right now, and there's going to be, you know, job losses. Uh, some of those are induced by the mountain pine beetle or the spruce beetle, or right. uh, some will be induced by caribou habitat protection or old growth protection. So if I sit here, uh, you know, and, and, and uh, saying that I believe, you know, that we are not only because the stability of, you know, if we watch TV and all the problems that we have in Egypt and uh, looking at Turkey and Syria and then the Ukraine and all the problems, even the United States and the storms and all the other things that happen. It's relatively stable here, beautiful, politically stable. We don't always like it necessarily, but relatively speaking, uh, you know, compared to yeah. Russia and the other places. And, and it has this, you know, amazing land that grows timber so well, so that I believe that, and although in the midterm, because of pine beetle and a number of other things, the AEC is coming down, 
and that all the things that are being done, you are so deeply involved in. A lot of questions that I get, you do too, a lot of times, is saying that, well, we're knocking down all the trees, but we don't plant them. That is wrong, because that, that was dramatically changed in the mid-80s, uh, you know, when industry took over replanting as an yeah, obligation, yeah. rather than government trying to manage it. Since that time, the, the uh, delays in replanting have been caught up. We're not only play, uh, planting three or four trees for everyone that is being knocked down. So that part in terms of making sure that we are good stewards in it as we get through the midterm, wherever that is, yeah, yeah. 40, 50 years maybe, we will have... Uh, a solid renewable and, and maintaining a, a solid forest. So along those lines, you know, when we, we draw the picture of what we're facing now and what you're facing, and, and you got so many negative stories that we've been kind of hearing. Right. And we even internally, we had, you know, when Jim was here and they had the, uh, Jim Gervan, and they had the association uh, conference, uh, association of forest professional conference right. last week. Uh, he gave a talk to a bunch of my staff just on that picture and, uh, and he finished it off and, and it was kind of this sense of doom and gloom, but at the same time, you know, you don't want to leave people with the perspective that it's a, it's a sunset industry because no. what, uh, you know, my take on it and, and then Jim agreed too was that yeah, we've lost a lot of sawmills in the interior over the last decade, as primarily initially as the as the initially and and now as the uh, a function of the mountain pine beetle epidemic Correct. and rationalization. But the mills that are left are all the best uh, the best mills that uh, you know standing. They're all first first quartile mills in the in North America. You know, there, there, maybe their one problem right now is is uh, uh, not the access to fiber, but the cost of the fiber. So we're, yeah. we're some of the uh, you know the highest uh, operating costs for logging and for stumpage and that in in North America, and that's you know the one of the drivers that is uh, is pushing mills to close in British Columbia, maybe before they close in Alberta or in other jurisdictions. Yeah, and to put it into perspective in terms of cost. Although we have some issues with stumpage as well, that's more or less the tax you pay for on a per cubic meter yeah. of, of harvested wood that goes to the government. That, that, that's a different issue. But in terms of the co underlying cost is that because the distances are so far away uh, a lot of times, uh, you know, that finding the market of the wood to those locations is usually difficult. The other part, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, kind of taking us back from, you know, the, the 50s when there were 600 mills and the, the sawmill would go in the bush and cut the wood there. The next evolution was that I was part of when I was already here in the mid 60s. <clears throat> it's the sawmills that were located, I'm kind of thinking Bear Lake, Ferguson Lake sawmills, Shelly, uh, Ferguson, uh, you know, and, and on and on. The, the sawmills were in the bush more further to centers. Yeah. And, and they then started consolidating in central areas because all of a sudden now chips and other byproducts were required in certain locations. And that transition took place and it eliminated again, a number of mills in the process already. Uh, I'm thinking about major operations. Rustad had a mill in the BCR site. Yeah. Uh, their carrier lumber was there. Halco was there. Uh, you know, Netherlands Overseas was there. Bear Lake or Paw Lumber was there. And then, uh, you know, and, and that evolution is still going on as the industry tries to find a new model that will fit them better in terms of rather than building, if I look at Houston, for instance, what happened in Houston? Well, the Houston sawmill used to be Northwood, and before that it was, I forget who built it now, it was a bit of a disaster when they built it, but 
Yeah, that's going anyway, before my the time. Anyway, the name yeah. just escapes me. But then the Northwood organization bought it, and it was the largest mill in the world physically. Yeah. Well, that's out of the window now. Those mills don't work effective and efficient anymore. Well, they they would work if the fiber was there, uh, and, but you know, rationalization of fiber supply. So that's what. Uh, but I think even in the future, the mill. A, a, an operation like that that takes the big logs and small, yeah, yeah. it will be more focused, so, I believe, and I'm just, uh, you know, thinking from what will, it, what will the industry look like as we go forward? And, and what I say a lot of times, the mills will be smaller, more effective, more efficient, more technology. Uh, you know, they, yeah. they will employ less people and they will try to extract more value from that log uh, you know, in, 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 in certain areas, but not the huge super mills yeah, yeah. that all the wood flows into. Well, that's the, the, I guess, the vision that the government has as well. Um, you know, and so they're probably in the process of juggling, you know, um, you know, reduced fiber supply, you know, the demands from First Nations, demands for old growth. And you know, it's only after they reconcile all those and then and still may try to maintain the existing industry that they're looking at guys like yourself with value added. So they had the announcement what in in January, late January, uh, you know, about was it eight hundred thousand? I'm guessing a little bit uh, for, uh, for BCTS wood to go to value added, which six hundred thousand six hundred. Okay, yeah, which is really is a it's. It's hopefully it's just one step in the right direction, but it's uh, it's not much of a step to generate um, investment in the short term. I was not happy about that. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah the, I saw your reaction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so simply what I'm saying, you know, that uh, you know, as we all kind of look at it, you do, I do, and, and and so does everybody else, is that there are a lot of issues right now that. Uh, you know, will shape the industry as we go forward. What we already know for a fact is that uh, First Nations will have 20% of the AAC. They will share in the revenue, meaning stumpage, in some formula or another. The likelihood is that I believe that as communities become more and more upset about the whole concept of uh, pertinency, uh, you know, saying that lumber or timber manufacture in the region should be manufactured in the region uh, is, uh, you know, the that concept has gone somewhat out of the window. Pressure will come back that communities will say we want have a share of the timber in our region so it gets us involved in determining or attracting capital that will invest there. Um, yeah, I see what you're saying. I don't know if, uh, you know, the whole idea of a pertency, just so that people know that was, you know, um, 30, 40 years ago, license, uh, companies were awarded a forest license um, and that forest license was tied to the operation of a sawmill, you know, that was tied to the license. Correct. Uh, and, but that wasn't a consistent uh, process across so some some uh, companies had a forest license and it didn't have an appurtenancy or you know that requirement to have a processing facility others did and so in I think it was around 2002 the Liberal government did away with that right for better and or worse and in some communities it was considerably worse um, you know bringing that back I, I know what you're saying um, with respect to First Nations involvement, we don't really know what they're going to think that way. But uh, exactly. I know there was, you know, historically, especially in the Fort St. James area comes to mind, there were a lot of uh, uh, value-added manufacturers operating in those regions. Um, and all of those... 50 things, altogether. Yeah, and yeah. I was the president of the local organization, as well as the BC Council Value-Added Wood Processes, you yeah. know. But the local area had a region all the way up to uh, Houston, McKenzie, uh, Quarnell in that region. I do, I, I, it's hard to visualize a lot of like new sawmills being built with uh, uh, you know just solely First Nations when the opportunity really is is um, you know for value added manufacturers of, of some form or another in those near those communities um, you know tying the the operation to the you know the byproducts of the sawmills that are are 
if not in that location, then nearby. So yeah, the, the challenge will be, Rob, uh, uh, is that uh, you know the finding the skill sets and making the products that are unique, different in the marketplace, and then attracting capital. Unless you have reasonable expectation of access to fiber, nobody's going to yeah. invest a nickel, right? Yeah. So the way I see it now, and even people like Russ Taylor agree with me, and, 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 and I'm sure you do as well as many others, is saying that there is potential and value added of lumber. I'm talking not, not about other things. Yeah. I'm not saying that there are no other things, but lumber in particular, there are... I think that the primary sector could do more in terms of trying to work on strategic relationships with sound and solid secondary manufacturers that pay their bills and that have been in business for a long time. And a lot of times that is not happening now and that's very unfortunate. I'll give yeah. you an example. That's why I'm upset about it, not as it relates to Brink, but in terms of uh, we do fine. But in terms of how do we attract investment in value-added manufacturing? But what we are doing now in the industry is BC Council, the BC Council uh, of, I forget the name of the organization, BC Lumber Trade Council, yeah. uh, you know, that is a group of 10 companies that, uh, you know, have formed a group that are getting, trying to usually get money from government to find other markets for our lumber products. And then I always wondered about it, like if we're making dimension lumber, if you go to China, in China they're not building houses like we use, they, if you, and, and they are usually bottom feeders, so they take the lower 20% yeah, of yeah. Matter, the low grades and, and then put it into value added products yeah or use it for forms because it's primarily, or forms or whatever yeah, yeah. and uh, but they could be further manufactured here and and probably get a better price for yeah. it and that would be beneficial to the primaries to do that but the government in fact helps to find the other markets for it they're now looking at uh, other markets in india to sh to, to sell them what? Yeah, to sell the, more of the low-grade. Low-grades. Yeah. And then they go to Japan to sell high-grades. But yeah. in the meantime... So they're, they, on the one side, they're, they want to create value added. On the other side, they're looking for an outlet for the low-grade. Actively that support, involved yeah, yeah. in it. And then injury to all of this on top of all of that, if you, uh, you know, the, the whole idea about the duties is that, uh, you know, that... That has been going on for virtually 100 years, and in particular since the early 80s, 25, 30 years ago, is that, uh, you know, the suggestion by the American producers that, uh, you know, the, uh, the primary sector, you know, by access to timber is subsidized, yeah. and, and they want to penalize them. We were able at one point to negotiate a deal alongside of the primaries, that if you were a secondary manufacturer and had no timber rights or an arm's length relationship to a primary, not directly to timber, then you would only pay duties on the input material. Yeah, yeah. If the raw material costs you $100 to, to buy, that's where you pay the duty. If you added $400 per thousand in value, and whatever products may be, if you ship that, th that would not be penalized then. Well, that changed because, uh, you know, the government in conjunction with uh, the BC uh, uh, Trade Council, uh, you know, uh, chose not to have that included. And, uh, and that was kind of the debt. Kind of an for... oversight, I think, on mm -hmm. their part. Uh, oversight on their part through lack of representation, probably, from value Well, one hopes that, it, uh, I don't think that, uh, you know, and that's not being cynical about it, but, uh, you know, that how could it possibly be yeah, oversight? Yeah. It was in the benefit of the, uh, you know, to negotiate the best deal for the primary sector, not to involve secondaries because yeah. it makes it more complicated then. And, uh, uh, you know, but the combination of all of those things uh, 
put a lot of people out of business. And uh, so where we are now in the secondary manufacturing sector, uh, I believe after the last announcement that was made by the government with BCTS that, uh, you know, the uh, allocated about 60 or 600,000 cubic meters, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, t for secondary manufacturing is, is just, doesn't amount to anything. Yeah, yeah. Not, and, not for anything new. You no. Know, nobody's going to start, not when, especially when that's spread out across the province. You know, if it's 600,000 provincially, well, you know, what's that, uh, you know. It's 50, not more 50, than one sawmill. You know, really. is that 100,000, you know, 50,000 in Prince George and 50,000 in Quinnell. Yeah, and why would uh, you want, and, 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 all, and, and the challenge is always the first uh, thing yeah. that happens with the bankers and uh, saying, well, where, uh, where are your supply agreements, yeah. right? Yeah. So the, uh, it, it does not attract uh, any new investment. At one time in the early 90s, I was quite involved in it. 20% uh, of the AAC was designated towards attracting investment in secondary manufacturing. Yeah. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. And now uh, the, 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 the amount that was allocated, we already had doubled that amount in BCTS that for all intents and purposes of only half of what they already had, which is all unfortunate, but I've belabored that already quite a bit, but uh, I still believe that in the future there could be potential in further manufacturing, but it will not happen. Not in, in the next few years anyway. Not, not no. in the next few years, no. 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 But then kind of looking at, uh, you know, the again looking forward, uh, you know, that there are opportunities uh, you know, working with First Nations for one, yeah. uh, you know, the, uh, that will control a lot of the fiber and some of the other things as well, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, the... That, that, and maybe that's the, you know, the other angle that uh, the government's thinking. If 20% of the fiber goes to First Nations and, and they're having a say and they're, they're getting, you know, uh, they want not just the uh, portion of the stumpage, but... Uh, um, you know, investment in their community, then maybe they'll tie the access to fiber to the majors to a secondary manufacturing production. But that's that's hypothesizing on what might happen in some of these communities, whether they take that direction or not. You see, a lot of times this First Nations, with all due respect, is we have not, if we cannot develop the skill sets, because uh, secondary manufacturing a lot of times takes unique skill sets, yeah, yeah. and then... Uh, you know the uh, and and if if you cannot attract capital to do that, other than just having the fiber, yeah. uh, you know that uh, the, we will not attract the uh, the. Uh, well, uh, yeah. So that's where the alliances with the majors and and them putting pressure on is probably like similar to what happened back in the. Uh, late night or mid nineties, and that when you had a lot of these, you know, the value added uh, companies uh, develop in that period. Uh, yeah, it was it was you know access to fiber through the small business force enterprise Correct. program. Now it's going to be a little bit more access to fiber through First Nations tenures. Yeah, uh, you know. yeah, which which will be interesting to yeah. say the least. Yeah, yeah. so. Now, for those people that are watching in particular, uh, you know, saying that what is happening now in terms of the, the growing more fiber, more timber, how long, and we're talking about the midterm, so for a period, we, once we find the balance between supply and demand for manufacturing capacity and timber availability, it will have to find, it will find, one way or the other, the balance as we look forward uh, uh, through what we call the midterm. Yeah. And, and, but then still have issues that we hear virtually all the time is we are not as, BC is the highest cost province. I'm not talking about cost of hauling are, are cutting the timber because our province is virtually the same size as Alberta. How come Alberta is more, has more stability than BC from an operational well, they're, they're, perspective? Uh, they're, 
their government's a little bit more pro-industry um, and they've reconciled a lot of their First Nations claims. Um, you know, they have treaties, so that isn't a problem. Okay. Um, they have, you know, the majority of the, the uh, province is, is broken up into um, forest management agreements, which are similar to our tree farms. So you don't have multiple, you know, you, might, you don't have as many multiple players on the same chunk of ground um, the way we have is, for is a supply area. the difference between volume-based, 10 years and, and, and area-based. So they're, they're primarily area-based. Um, their, their forest management agreements are, are, are managed by the, the, you know, for the majority of the province are managed by the that forest That is companies. a unique difference, Rob, yeah. right? Because what we say a lot of times is that uh, if, and we have some examples of it, Dunkley would be one, where they had a, a small 80, thousand cubic meters or so license they doubled or tripled it in yeah. size just by good management that if we have an incentive and in, for the uses of that particular uh, forest in terms of uh, growing more fiber that would create yeah. that incentive wouldn't that be a better yeah. system i think that's where a lot of the you know the, the first nations that we've talked with uh, you know they're uh, you know they've uh, the government's identified a volume for a lot of them, and it's volume-based in, in a timber supply area, but at the same time, they're looking ahead longer term and saying, okay, well, if we get this volume, we'd like to convert it to an area-based tenure yeah. in their, you know, within their traditional territory. Yeah. Um, so it'll be a, you know, a bit more of a patchwork of licenses across the That's the way it will go, right? In the longer term, probably, yes. Yeah. Why so long? Well, it takes a, a while to uh, first, you know, let's say you're a First Nation and you've been awarded 200,000 cubic meters in the Prince George TSA, yeah. which is, uh, what, uh, 6 million cubic meters, 7.5 million cubic meters right now. So where right. do you put that? So identifying, you know, the appropriate area, you know, going through all the consultation with government, with the other First Nations, uh, that's, that, that process takes a couple of years. Right, um, and couple you know, of years. That, that's couple, not bad. Yeah, but some of them were, haven't even started down the path. So, yeah. um, you know. So what we are saying is, what happened with twenty percent of the AC will go to First Nations is a good thing because that resolves some of those unresolved know, issues. Yeah. Uh, getting a share of the revenue, it's a good thing. Then from there on in, the next step for First Nations is to build those relationships with others, may that be primaries yeah. or in involvement, maybe in some cases even with secondaries that have the skill sets and the ability to manage the operational sites and, and strategic relationships, that probably is a good thing, yeah. right? Yeah, and I think most of the major companies have, uh, well, I know most of the major companies have uh, uh, you know, a number of people on staff to, uh, manage First Nations relationships and have been doing so for probably the last decade, knowing that that's the future for them as well. And yeah. So uh, building those relationships and, uh, and grounding them to you know, how they can work co cooperatively and collaboratively on different ventures. How will that affect cost? Like, uh, you know, well, saying... That's going to increase costs. Uh, because that's yeah, a given, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, saying that you know, that's what I found with secondary manufacturing or value added that, you know, the, the concerns that the primaries had, Kofi in particular, and representing and the uh, BC Limited Trade Council uh, had issues about that uh, if, if other people have their hands on timber, then the cost likely yeah. will go up. Yeah. Now, I thought that that likely is a good thing because that would help us in our argument with the Americans. Because the Americans, I always say, make, uh, make the, have, have the right complaint for the wrong reason. Well, I think the Americans are just, uh, you know, they don't really care about what our cost is. They just want us to go away so that their, their lumber prices go up and they make more profit. And it doesn't matter what our it. cost is. Yeah. You know, and, and they're probably going to get their wish here because you know, you know, 
Um, you know, Canada used to provide about 30% of the softwood lumber to the U.S. You know, and B.C. was about half that, so 15%. And yeah. I think we peaked at around, I'm kind of going on a limb here, but probably about uh, 13, 14 billion board feet of lumber. Uh, you know, you look forward now, we're probably going to be six, maybe even five billion. So, you know, less than half of, of that number. And so that's a lot of board feet that's been moved to the U.S. Southeast. Um, and at, at some point, even the U.S. Southeast won't be able to meet all of the U.S. demand. No, so uh, they won't because it's, uh, you know, but at the same time, what it means is that and something to consider from our perspective as we own the timber, you and me and the public, is saying that duties are here to stay. Because there is no reason that the underlying fundamentals is that I want to make sure your cost is higher than mine and I want to preserve that. So there is no reason for the uh, U.S. major producers behind it is saying keep the cost up high. Duties of one form or another, they, even the, when they had the last agreement in what, 2006, they, uh, you know, there was, uh, you know, the, there was an agreement, but that agreement involved duties depending on the price of lumber. Yeah. So are they here to stay? Well, likely we might have an agreement, but the agreement will probably be tied to some form of duty depending on price or some kind of a, a restriction on, on uh, the, the export of lumber to the U.S. Yeah. And, and then the, the other part, uh, Rob, uh, you know, and in, in, in your specialty in particular is saying that, you know, to grow the forest and, and there is no question in anybody's mind. I usually use the comparison Sweden versus Canada. We can grow much more fiber here than we are doing now but it likely will involve more intense management of a fiber base. But then the other part about it is also how do we plant that? And is that mechanically planted? How are we managing the forest uh, to, to give it the free to grow stage, uh, you know, and, and to, to stimulate yield? So yeah, that's an interesting and longer topic, but you know the interesting part, especially from uh, my company's perspective, is is that in the last ten years, you know you've seen the annual level cut decline significantly. You've seen the amount of uh, the harvest actually decline from you know provincially, what uh, ninety five million pro, uh, in say two thousand and ten to seventy or, or, or sixty five million now. Um, the amount of area harvested annually has dropped probably about, you know, by about at least 50%, simply because we've transitioned from these large clear cuts in the dead pine to uh, higher volume stands on, uh, in the mountains on steeper slopes, but it's, you know, spruce and balsam, that kind of thing. So, in, in, so with all these declines, what we've also seen is that the amount of seedlings that are planted has almost doubled. You know, 10 years ago, we planted about uh, 1,100 seedlings per hectare. Um, and that was mainly, again, in these pine areas where trees grow back naturally. And they were, you know, the, gov the, the licensees were planting just enough to make sure that they achieved their free to grow. But in the last 10 years, we've seen, you know, as you transition to steeper slopes, you've got more brush and more competition. You know, it's a little bit wetter. Um, the forest companies started planting more uh, for two reasons. One is, is the competition. They needed more seedlings and ideally larger seedlings to compete with the, the underbrush. But then uh, there's a transition away from using herbicides uh, in a lot of these areas. And so if you're not using herbicide then, uh, and you have that competition for sunlight, it puts the seedlings at risk. So how do you, how do you combat that? You, you plant more seedlings to remove some of that risk. So you know, what we've seen is uh, from you know, 2010, we planted provincially uh, close to about 210,000 uh, no, sorry, 210 million seedlings per year in the province. Uh, 
2019, 2020, we hit almost uh, 305, 310 million uh, seedlings. So it's, it's, you know, it's a good news story from the seedling perspective. Um, we'll probably drop back a little bit in the near future, but not as low as it was in 2010, but our forecasts are still around you know, 250 million seedlings a year uh, for planting. Uh, all of that is, is, you know, the seedlings are better quality. They've got seed orchards. They're, you know, they do the uh, genetic testing to make sure that they're the best seedlings, uh, fastest growing, that yeah. kind of thing. So, um, you know, the, all of that translates to a shorter rotation. You know, you know we're, before we're harvesting stands that were, you know, 100, 120 years old, sometimes as old as 200. You know, if we, once we get into these second growth stands, it'll be... Trees that were planted, you know, 40, 50, 60 years ago, um, and and that's what we're looking at right now. I know, uh, you before coming in here, you had mentioned uh, uh, government's got a bunch of uh, incentives or, or or money allocated towards silviculture, and yeah. uh, and that's looking at um, you know different uh, commercial thinning um, scenarios, that kind of thing, and you know. Uh, late 80s, they were harvesting in the Bowron, which was uh, uh, yeah. just a you know what. 30 kilometers, 40 kilometers uh, east of here. Yeah. Um, and the seedlings, the seedlings in there, uh, actually not seedlings anymore, the trees in there are already 30 centimeters, uh, you know, and that's what 40, not, not even 40, 35 years ago. Yeah. So there's, you know, uh, the seedlings growing in those, in that plantation or that old uh, harvest area from the 1985 to 1987. I had a sawmill there in 1983. Yeah. So, you know, if they can get access to them, and that's, uh, yeah. that's I know that's one of the issues that uh, some of the forest companies have said is, you know, the government has these, you know, even though commercial thinning is widely spread out uh, throughout the world, they've got all of these uh, bureaucratic constraints on what's what's eligible that uh, it's kind of inhibiting uh, development in that, those areas. That's a bit of a problem, yeah. right? To say it mildly. So at the same time, you know, maybe that you know that will open up uh, with this new investment by government towards uh, alternative silviculture practices. So the future looks. Looks, right. It, well, it, it, short term uh, future is uncertain, but longer term. But say is, forty, is fifty years, yeah. and and then, and yeah. and and we don't use herbicides anymore. The way and that's poisonous, not good for our land. Well, controversial to say it's the least. Controversial. Yeah, yeah. yeah they, you know, it, 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 we use fertilizer or, or herbicides on farmland uh, yeah. extensively. Yeah. So the idea was, well, is how how different is our. Uh, our plantations from, yeah. from if we're going to treat it as a crop, we treat it as a crop, but yeah. uh, that's not what the, uh, um, you know. That's where it should go, in my opinion, and treating it as a crop. Now, thinning, <clears throat> is that not, you know, they, I'm just kind of dreaming here a little bit, is saying that drone technology will be used, there is no question about that, and likely already is. And, and could it not be, uh, Rob, that, uh, you know, that I have this machine that I developed, I don't, you know, but hypothetically speaking, you know, that I can send out there and then uh, say, manage this land here and then uh, exactly record the things that are being done and, and, and adjust it to, does it totally automated. Well, there's drones are getting more and more popular, but it's right. it's uh, you know it's just another tool to uh, you know limit uh, you know boots on the ground. You can see you know what you can see on the ground. You can see in uh, in in a lot less time and a lot uh, uh, less effort just right. by using you know, and employing a drone. You know, and you're just a, you get a bird's eye view for uh, you know a fraction of the cost, and, right. and that's the the you know the incentive there. I know they're even looking at it for you know. Plant, tree planting and, and utilizing drones and makes that. sense, right? Well, yes and no. In certain areas, it'll make sense. At the same time, you know, using drones depending on you know for planting, are yeah. they seeding? We don't really have enough seed, you know, because the factor you're using drone seeding, it might be you know uh, five times as much seed that you would need to cover an area. Right, so. Right. There's there's hurdles, but you know yeah. the whole process is continually. It's evolving. in transition, yeah, yeah. right? 
and then uh, you know the but if he is sitting here you and me and uh, having been in the industry for a long time still are in it uh, then as we look forward and saying in the short term yeah it has been a challenge for the public and the communities and thousands of jobs have been lost and uh, you know but i think that it is now slowly getting to the point where we are in balance more than we were before we still see changes happening but uh, i believe that we are approaching the point where also looking back that the markets have not been very good as they yeah. get back hopefully to a sense of normality which we kind of think that it will be a soft landing in terms of a recession prices will come back should be to, nice if it was back to 1600 i think is well, maybe a lot if, of those companies at least to a thousand <laughs> you know but uh, you know and and then that will give industry confidence and yeah. then we'll see more investment again because it's not a sunset industry that's the message i want to give to our readers in fact to the contrary yeah. it is an industry in transition the future looks good uh, you know more parties will be becoming part of the industry and uh, it will look different but up there are lots of opportunities yeah. as we go forward there's a lot of sawmills still going to be here, uh, you know, in another 10 or 20 years. And, I uh, believe so too. Maybe not all, as many, but uh, the ones that are left are going to be very efficient and very, yeah. and, you know, a clean place to work even because, you know, yeah. with all the the, uh, the evolution in dust control and that in those in those sawmills and uh, automation and that, you know, you're not really yeah. moving lumber the way you did before. It's, uh, it's no more of a... No question about that. Uh, and, and I still believe... I'd be remiss if I didn't say this, that at least 50% of the lumber being manufactured in the future will go up the value chain. And that's where the opportunities yeah. are, and I deeply believe in that. But in the meantime, uh, you know, that uh, we're very, very fortunate being part of this industry, having part of the history and, and uh, as it evolves as we speak. Yeah. Rob. John. Thank you for being my yeah. guest again. Thanks. Yeah.